the one time I was trending on Twitter was when I went on Newsnight like 2017, pointed out that Emmanuel Kant was racist, which is not controversial. Like, there's no way you could argue that Emmanuel Kant was not a racist. He clearly writes down many times that Africans are inferior, white people are superior. And he, he spent loads of time with these crazy theories. They're not even like sensible. Like these crazy theories about the thickness of our skin, the, the blood, the way the oxygen runs in our body, etc. And based on his mad ideas, he, he wrote advice to slave to enslavers of how to best punish us. And basically says, don't whip. It's not, not you can't whip Africans because their skin's too thick. So you need to use a split bamboo cane, and that's how you draw the blood out. And this is the guy we're talking about. And people are saying, well, let's celebrate his universal theory of race. Come on. Buckle up. Let's get into the show. You can help support the podcast grow to be the best possible show that it could be. Head over to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. Throw down a five-star rating, a long, long, in-depth review, or as short as you want it to be. And share with your friends and family and get them involved in the conversations. Interact with me on Instagram over at ByAlexHolmes on there. Drop me an email at alex at alexholmes.co. Happy to have conversations with you guys. I really appreciate you all for listening. It takes a lot of effort to create these shows. Subscribe and be a part of a growing community of people who want to see this podcast grow and really have those impactful mental health conversations that we hope can change the way that we all look at each other and help us be the best possible people that we can be that's all let's get back to the show hello wonderful people welcome back to another episode of time to talk the home of conversation around mental health masculinity and healing this week I'm exploring the conversation around empire with the one and only Kehinde Andrews. Professor Kehinde Andrews is a professor of black studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University. He is the founder and director of the Center of Critical Social Research, founder of the Harambe Organization of Black Unity, which houses the blog Make It Plain, and co-chair of the UK Black Studies Association. We come together to chat about his new book New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. And we unpack what the book means in relation to his thesis, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. You may be asking, what does this have to do with mental health today? And I argue that it has everything to do with mental health today. We chat about the psychosis of whiteness and global psychology, the intersections of mental health, masculinity and racism, and what we can learn about Western racism from the Enlightenment and traditional philosophical thinkers. As ever, we will be unpacking this conversation on Talk More next week and then some. So please send any questions you have to tttalkpod at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at byalexholmes. Now, buckle up. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, K&A, to Time to Talk. Appreciate you having you here, man. How are you doing? I'm good, though. It's good to be Good to be talking to you again. Yeah. See the podcast will be good as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a while since we've spoken, since the last book you put out. Um, and as I was saying to you just before recording, I was saying the book is making me angry. Um, I'm angry <laughs> about everything I'm hearing. <laughs> and 
I don't know. The thing is, it's weird because you know exactly. I knew, I know most of the stuff that you're talking about in the beginning. And I'm just like, yeah. but it's just hearing it again. <laughs> hearing yeah. it again. No, angry is good though. That's what you need to be. That's the, the, that's the right emotion is angry. So I'm glad that yeah. it made you angry. It's the good anger. Did you feel angry writing the book? I mean, it was, you know, honestly, a part of it is a bit depressed. Like, when you actually get into the, the broader picture of it, I knew before, but when you get into the detail, I mean, the mm. devil really is in the detail. Yep. Writing that genocide chapter, I was like, wow, this is this is bad. And like, yeah, I just say yeah. that was just dark. But after, because I did that first, the rest of it, it was just, it was kind of light. Oh, okay. It was, it was a lot easier, because that, that one was... I'm not saying something. The genocide chapter is crazy. Um, okay, so before we get deep into the the show, um, I want to ask you because I'm, you know, I'm in this new wave of episodes and recordings. I'm building a time to talk playlist. I think music is important. I think people find a lot of their liberation and their freedom in in song um and stuff and i wanted to see if you had any any songs you wanted to add to the, the playlist and what kind of songs um you would add to it we've had a we've had a huge mix it's been very varied so um yeah i'd have to say what what i'm listening to oh the sasha cause autobiography at the minute it's a book i read years ago yeah. and so now i started listening to them to catch up again to refresh and the song that still my favorite song probably is commons trek a song for Asata, where he actually takes lines of the book, like the first, the first line of the, the song is a, is the first line of the book, and just raps that story. I've never heard a, a better rap, honestly. Okay. Just like the way he does it, the way he tells the story, the way he weaves it in, and also my daughter's named Asata as well. Okay. After Asata, go after that. So I definitely, 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 song for Asata has to be on any. Song for Asata, comment. All right. Before he sold out, before he went, um, before he went to Kanye West and sold out, he lost his, <laughs> lost his mind. <laughs> oh man, um, I just yeah, man, come on, I, I love his old stuff. Obviously, I, I love everybody's old stuff. I'm always, yeah, in, exactly. I'm, I'm always into everyone's old stuff. I haven't listened to any of his new things right about now. Um, but uh, I watched Brown Sugar the other day, and I was um, yeah. getting into getting into all of that. It's like yeah, hip hop in the, like you know in the mid in the early two thousands and. Everyone's yeah, kind of like, yeah, the golden age of it all, and I was just like, I'm just looking at stuff now. I'm thinking, wow, I wonder what they're gonna say about this this period, and I wonder what you're gonna write about it in the next twenty years, Kane. <laughs> you know what it is? I actually started listening. I listened to Grime a lot there. Okay, I thought it took me a long time to get into it, but because Grime sounds a bit like lyric, not lyrically, but mm. musically, sounds a bit like old school hip hop a little bit. It's got that more of that flavor to the edge to it. But the lyrics, honestly, mm. it's like depressing. Like it's, yeah. it's really bad. I have to say, like that's one thing where the politics hasn't completely gone. Like Kano's album, mm-hmm. probably it was really good. Mm-hmm. But generally, I'm for honest, it's kind of gone. It's, it's kind of hip hop as a, as a genre, rap, but generally Britain no different. Mm-hmm. It really sold out in a, in a really, really terrible way. Yeah. That's that's super interesting. It's like, like music speaks to specific times, doesn't it? Like you can you can kind of get an idea of a country's state by looking at the media but you can also get an idea about the, how the country feels or a period of time how they feel by listening to their music and listening to grime i mean when it was at its rawest it was like really kind of like rough and ready and and if you say now you know it's changing and people are you know in general just just not necessarily in good places 
Like, I, I, you know, we're not going to be hearing um, the, the uplifting stuff. You're not going to hear uplifting grime. I've never, I've never, I, I don't really have, I don't really have that working together. You know what I mean? But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a grime head, so I'm like, yeah. You know. But you need, but you need, but you need, but sometimes you need, you need the uh, anger in it. Yeah, you, you need do. angry music. So I've been DMA for the past as well, and DMA's music politically mm. is awful. But sometimes you need to put it on. Sometimes, especially working in these white institutions, these universities, man. Yeah. The matter of time, the blackest of DMX is on the headphones <laughs> <laughs> to get over something. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not endorsing it, but yeah. I say sometimes you just need it. You need the grime sometimes yeah. to get through. Oh, man. Um, Andy, on that very quickly, I want you to actually just define divine politics and kind of how do you kind of decompress a lot of that stuff at work because like you're you're very you're in these spaces where people are consistently just rattled all the time and i'm just thinking how do you decompress when you come home is it just like i wouldn't be surprised if it was a shot of rare nephew and you're just like (laughs) backing that offline (laughs) trying to just stay sane but um yeah define define the political but then also kind of how do you decompress well, it's interesting because everything's political, right? So yeah. I think that's important. And now, even some like, as much as I'm criticizing the lyrics now of, of grime and stuff and even hip hop, that's still politics, right? That's still where people are. And that is, and it, it's, it'll be wrong for us to look down on it in a sense because it's kind of like just where people are at. And if that's where they're at, and particularly with the younger generation, because I work with a lot of young black people, and up until like, there's been a lot, there has been this decline in what we call political, like political awareness and stuff. But we can't blame young people for that. That's my fault. I'm old, I'm old enough now where that's just my fault. Right? I'm saying, what did we do? What, what's gone wrong that we got generations of young black people that aren't, aren't political, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and by political, I don't mean Labour Party and all that. Political is just engaged in the world, right? Understanding stuff um, in a very broad, broad, broad sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that's coming back, though, hopefully. I think the protests over the last... Last, not just last year, because I think for black people it started before. <laughs> like last year, we got like white people got involved, but this has been happening for at least twenty sixteen, fifteen, for at least five, six years, mm. I'd say, um, for young black people. So I think we're starting to awaken again, and I think that's even some of that's been reflected in the music as well. There's more tracks, George's got some stuff coming out. There's stuff, there's stuff. So even like, so I think that's important, and then. How do you decompress? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, alcohol definitely. Yeah, the rain definitely definitely helps. I'm a big Appleton's Appleton drum. That's, oh, right. that's, that's my expensive now, you know. Oh, um, yeah, it, is, it is getting up there. It is. It is uh, and music, but honestly, music. So that's why I do. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm big into hip hop. Okay. Um, that's why I started to like grime as well because it's just like it's, it's the emotion that you need, right? Like it just it, it's good working out and stuff like that. Mm. Um, Reading and work. So, like, this is a thing where I people always tell me I should stop working because I do work a lot. But for me, the work isn't necessarily work. Like, writing the book isn't work. Or talking about someone doing this, it's not really work. It's 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 important, and I think that's that's a good outlet for me anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to get some of these ideas across and uh, to make sure because I think with the university is not different than a lot of different places because it's so white. You you just if that's where you stay and that's all you do I can't understand you, I literally would go I'd go mm. insane mm. but because I spend so much time not in the uni and in these kind of conversations or talking or writing or there's a different audience that's what keeps me sane 100% yeah. 
Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I would have thought so because um, it's heavy stuff. And I was thinking, I was saying this the other day because I, I work a lot with emotionality and with a, a, like, a lot of mental health, a lot of conversations around that, anxiety, well-being and the like. And it can get heavy when you're consistently like in there managing all these emotions and being confronted with all of this different stuff and um and even just with yourself as well so that's why everybody knows who's listening just knows that i get on my skates and i'm just going rolling around and falling over yeah. and just kind of enjoying like just um getting into the body and being a child again just at least for a little bit you know because yeah. you know there's a there's this idea that um, so, because I'm so concerned, I'm so empathic in that kind of in that kind of way that everything is kind of like coming up onto me, and if I don't have the boundaries or kind of like set, give myself some sort of distance and space from some from things, can become overwhelming, for real, for sure. Yeah. So, but um, noise cancelling headphones, I'd say that noise cancelling headphones, big noise cancelling headphones. <laughs> I've got this one. There's these three. I can't. I won't name them because. They just yeah. There's too many swear words in the titles, but there's like there's two pack album. What is it? What three died? Um, are you still down? Under there, there's like a free track run where it's just proper anger. Like, and if you come to you come out of these meetings, sit in the office, sit down in the desk, put the headphones on, play this. Feel yeah. much better. Much oh, better. I might have to. I might have to. I was looking at some Tupac albums the other day, and I was thinking, "Am I here? Is this where I'm at?" <laughs> <laughs> Now, if that is not a title that doesn't intrigue you into kind of opening it up and and delving into the inner crevices of yourself and recognizing the world we live in, then I don't know what is because um, it just kind of calls the question. What it did, what it did for me, was really help me to recognize the education I had growing up, the education at school, like how how permeable all of the these ideas of what white supremacy was um was really pushed into us as kids and as students and the like so let's start with why you wrote the book and um what you what you hoped to get out of the book and what you got from writing it um see why i wrote it was really so it's a prequel in many ways to back to black uh retelling black radicalism for the 21st century i spoke to loads of people about that book and what was clear was that you know, that's a lot of the, this is what revolution, we need revolution, this is what revolution looks like. But you need to, people need to be convinced first that you need a revolution, right? Like that's, that's, and that's what this book is. That's why I like the book kind of just, there's no real joy in it. It's just like things are terrible. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was clear that that's what people needed to hear. Like to really, to see that you cannot reform this system. It, racism is from the beginning of what the West is to what it is now, white supremacy, that's the best. That's what it is. That's that's how it works, and so because of that, we need to do things radically different. That's kind of the point of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you start the book, kind of obviously setting the context for it. You know, we've had we're coming up to the one year anniversary of the George Floyd, George Floyd murder. We've got the we've had the Derek Chauvin um, verdict out. We need to we're just waiting for sentencing at the point of recording. Uh, we've had that. We've had. You know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. We've had numerous deaths leading up to them um, being killed. And, you know, it could be argued that 
probably wouldn't be reacting in the way that we reacted about them if we weren't in the pandemic. Do you, does that sound like something that is true to you or does that resonate? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I said, like we had, so I did a lot of media around June, Mm -hmm. May, June time. And you would think this was the first time there's been Black Lives Matter protests in, in Britain, right? Like really, so Black Lives Matter comes to Britain. Back to Black, which was published in 2018, but, starts with 2016 this major protest in Birmingham uh, Black Lives Matter thousands of young people on the streets it was the same in London same up north same across the, you know the difference was there was no white people <laughs> like it was just black people and what happened last year was the same thing happened like there wasn't any different yeah. uh, in 2016 it was Philando Castile and Alton Sterling was killed and that sparked the protest and we came out the only real difference last year was lots of white people got involved and I am convinced that if we were not in lockdown and it was not you know, pandemic and people were stuck in their yard. I don't think that would happen. If it was just like normal, I, I, why would, what was so different about George Floyd than any other killing? Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I'm 100% certain that the reason it hit mainstream was just because there was little else to do, right? Yeah. So, so because everybody was at home and they were kind of consumed and they had no other choice but to look at their screens and yeah. find a cause to go on, then yeah, they would, um, that, that's the reason it kind of happened. Because I did think and to myself... Like there's no... At this point, you couldn't even go outside. Remember, there's not, like, good yeah. reasons to go outside. You're yeah. in the protest, like, hey, go outside. I'm, maybe, I'm being, okay, maybe I'm being a bit pessimistic, but... I don't know. No, 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 no. I, I, I feel like I had a similar frustrations last year. Um, I was very much like, okay, so, you know, as you say, Fernando, Cost, Cost, uh, Fernando Castillo um, and so many others, it's just like, we just didn't do the same we didn't have the same energy especially over here because obviously it's not the country that these things happened in um those particular cases happened in but we just didn't have the same kind of energy that you know um and and the conversations i didn't have back then i didn't have you know various white friends messaging me asking if i'm okay like this year like last year i had white friends messaging me asking if i was okay numerous podcast conversations about it like it just it just felt it just felt very strange um you know like but then that's that's the context for the book as well and um what the book does very well is it kind of it breaks down it breaks down how how fucked this all is and I don't swear often, yeah. But for me to like, I was walking to the gym this morning, um, and I was kind of like, I was going, it was deep in the, in the book, and I was just like, wow, I'm just like, this is just so much going on, um, like so everything is happening. But I want to talk to you because the first part of the book is about enlightenment, and I've had issues with the enlightenment period, um, especially with the Western philosophers, the Western ethicists. Um, I studied ethics at uni, not at uni, not my line. I studied ethics at A level, and I and I and I had trouble, trouble kind of connecting with what they were talking about, um, because it did seem very whitewashed. It did seem very um, ab, just what's the word, like subtracted from them, you know. Um, and I find it very difficult to really continue with um, the the study of it but what do you have to say about the enlightenment um because you have a real kind of um you really break it down as to what kind of people we're talking about um at the time 
Yeah, I mean, before I wrote the book, I would always would have said, like, you kind of need to go through, like, don't get rid of stuff, you know, people like Kant and Voltaire and all that. Mm. Again, devil's in the detail. Now I read it. We did this movie, like, literally, get Bondi Enlightenment. Like, it's it's actually damaging to your do, brain. Actually, do, you want to explain what the, do you want to explain what the Enlightenment <laughs> is, actually, for people who probably don't, don't necessarily know yeah. what that period was? So the Enlightenment is like 17th, 18th century. It's like this European philosophy movement, which even the name gives it away. Like the idea that light comes out of Europe and spreads across the dark parts of the world. And the Enlightenment is is, is really important because it's credited with the philosophy behind science, the philosophy behind ethics, the philosophy behind politics. Mm. So it, that's why it's so strongly defended. And that's why we still teach it. So it, really all of the, pretty much everything that we teach now in universities, schools, etc., runs through some of the, some Enlightenment thinkers of, or others, Darwinism, etc. Um, even Marx. I think Marx gets a pass all the time because Marx is radical. Marx is the Enlightenment. They're all part of this movement of understanding the world uh, that emerges from Europe and the States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's usually credited as being positive, freedom, liberation, democracy, human rights, all this stuff. But he just completely missed the fact that it's white supremacy... It's like completely and utterly white supremacy in, in theoretical form. Like every single one of the Enlightenment's got, and not bad, none, probably, okay, maybe take out Marx, but even Marx is dodgy at this. But <laughs> Voltaire, uh, Rousseau, Locke, Kant, all of them agree, and even, no, even Marx agrees this as well, that white people are superior, uh, Africans are inferior, and there's a hierarchy in between. And many of them, including Immanuel Kant, go to a big, like a big, massive effort to draw out the different races, to explain them, etc. Um, and that's that's not just like a side issue. Like the usual defense of this is, okay, it was a long time ago. Those are old ideas. They were racist, but the theory is not racist. That's nonsense. The actual, that idea that knowledge is European, that rationality is European, that white people are superior is the basis of Enlightenment thought, all of it. You cannot shift one from the other. You literally can't can't do. It's so you can't you can't you can't have the theory but not the reality of the person, right? As soon as I as soon as when as soon as the I'm not even trying to be deep here, but like as soon as when my lecturer mentioned Kant or Kant or however you pronounce it, I think I explained Kant exactly, which is definitely. Perfect way to Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, When my teacher introduced him, I, I was like, okay, so man's German. Uh, and in, in these times, I'm not 100% sure that I would have been safe having a conversation with him about like anything to do with any of this. Because you know, sometimes when when I look at, when we, when, we, when we read books and we're reading about all of these pastimes, these historians and these philosophers and um, writers and stuff, I always think to myself, would I be able to sit down with these guys and have a chat around the <laughs> ideas? And you know, when you watch these TV shows and like, you know, and they kind of hallucinate the... Um, the older person and they come back and they talk to you about these ideas and oh my god I was speaking to um, Bertrand Russell about X, Y and Z da 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 um, <laughs> and I was like to myself I don't know if I could sit down like listening to this book um, I don't think I could sit down with any of these guys who <laughs> don't look at me like what do you know about higher thoughts like go back to where you are so, savage and I'm like, and I'm like this is just so so crazy 
No, they would they would have talked to you like honestly like Cad <laughs> really bad. Cad like is so bad. And the one time I was trending on Twitter was when I went on Newsnight like twenty seventeen <laughs> and just pointed out that Emmanuel Kant was racist. Which is not com- which is not controversial. Like there's no way you could argue that Emmanuel Kant was not a racist. He clearly writes down many way many times Africans are inferior, white people are superior. Um but it's even worse. So in the book I, uh, there's a quote from Kant where he's Basically, because of his... And he, he spent loads of time with these crazy theories. They're not even, like, sensible. Like, his crazy theories about the thickness of our skin, the, the blood, the way the oxygen runs in our body, etc. And based on his mad ideas, he was... Um, he, he wrote advice to slay, to enslavers of how to best punish us. And basically, he says, don't whip... It's not, not, you can't whip Africans because their skin's too thick. So you need to use a split bamboo cane, and that's how you draw the blood out of them. But this is the guy we're talking about. And people are saying, well, let's celebrate his universal theory of rights. Come on. Nah. 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 I don't know what to say. Nah. I just, yeah. I, how do we kind of then um, move through that? I'm not, I'm not a big fan of moving past things, you know, because I feel like we're putting stuff aside and we're kind of saying that we just compartmentalise it into something and just ignore it. I think... What the, yeah, what this what your book does well is it gives, is kind of present the opportunity to move through all of this stuff because you have to. It's literally like you're wading through the blood of the blood of all of this stuff with with, with your book. It's just literally, literally because if you're not if you're not open and ready to sit down and have a conversation about like the realities of all the stuff that has happened and the nature of um, you know European thought in comparison to African and Asian thought and identity, um, then it's going to be a very tough, tough time for you, like going through this stuff. And, um, but so like, how do we, in a nutshell, how do we move through that? And because what we've been taught, because it's so ingrained into us, especially as bodies of color, like we literally have that with us all the time. We feel it on a visceral level, as we, when we leave the house, but when we get to schools and on an institutional level, we kind of force this down our throats. Yeah, I mean, you have to encounter it, and I think and I say it always teach this stuff, but teach it in the way to critique it, like, teach it in this way. This is clearly not what we need because it's so important to frame in how we think of today. So, if you think about like the rights that you get from the Enlightenment and Kant in particular, is this kind of universal right to life. Uh, and that's like the UN talk about universal right to life, right to life, right to life. But enshrined in this right to life is racial hierarchy, right? Because what it's basically saying is you don't have the right to equality. You don't have the right to really have the right to be the same as us. Because remember, in this, this enlightenment framework, we're not really human beings. We don't deserve equality. We just deserve to not be killed. So mm-hmm. even Kant comes to, the, comes to the conclusion that you shouldn't enslave people and, and you know, colonialism is probably bad. But I can say that I don't, you shouldn't poach gorillas. But that's exactly what he means. He basically, he basically sees us, that's how he sees us, right? Mm. And so you have this framework of rights that says everybody has a right to lie, but that's it. And that's, 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 that stops. And we shouldn't then be surprised that if you actually look at global, equality, global inequality, it is the hierarchy of white supremacy from the Enlightenment, from Immanuel Kant, actually. Africa at the bottom, right? The West at the top and everybody else in between. So these ideas are really important to engage with because they are still the ideas which shape the world, mm. right? So you have to, you have to, if we're not prepared to, to go through it you're never gonna understand the nature of the problem yeah yeah that's so true and even the fact that we even have something called a global south 
is even 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 weird. Um, but also, <laughs> but, <laughs> go on. No, I'm just gonna say, think about something. I like I I spend a lot of time around middle class white people. This is not like a middle class. There's lots of nice middle class white people as well. But you get somebody's like you can see some of the way these ideas are framed. So I remember we came back from uh, South Africa once, and we had this I had this whole big argument with this uh, person about. You know, I was saying, isn't it terrible? Like, look at the condition people are living in, etc. And she was like, no, but they're happy, you know, they're enjoying it. Why are you putting your Western views on them? I'm like, oh, they're, they're getting on with it, right? Because they have to. But you've literally, in, in her mind, people living in shacks with no toilet, uh, I mean, dirt poverty was fine because they were smiling, right? And like, that, and that, unfortunately, is so much of what frames that whole development agenda. It's, it's those ideas are the ones we have to get rid of 100%. Yeah. yeah. Why can't the whole world? move together collectively in process and development and kind of develop together as just well what with their own still with their own cultural identities i just don't um it's um it's hard to think that when when engaging in these conversations with people how we as black people we have to have our we have our minds kind of i don't know flipped upside down trying to kind of communicate these ideas on a level to people who just don't really want to engage in that way um you don't feel like they should you don't feel like you you know i mean if everything that you mentioned you feel like oh is about is a problem or oh everything's about race and and i think well that's that's what that's what the world is predicated on (laughs) you know know i mean literally and you and you and you explain that very well in the book and get to that in a minute but um so what can we what can we learn like what can we learn from these guys? Because when we when we discount like half of their theories, like what can we like what can we learn about what they've said, and then in, in in the in the hope of like creating a new I don't know idea around how we understand history. Um, is yeah, there, I is mean, I valuable, is there something valuable that we can take from them? You know. Yeah, what not to do? That would be my, that would be my yeah, just don't what do this. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, it's important to learn it because, because it's so important to have things are shaped and because it is just, it just are like fundamental and you cannot understand what's happening today mm-hmm. without understanding the roots of that. And the roots of that really are the enlightenment, enlightenment thought, which is why this is what's taught in universities. So it's really important if you want to understand what's happening today to understand that and then to understand why it is that people just can't engage not even necessarily they don't want to it's that if you've been raised and this is all you've been learned and this is all you taught from day one you're not going to have the capacity how would you possibly have the capacity to understand because there's a particular way you're being taught and i think the another thing to think about that would be even the enlightenment thinkers so we we i say we often the myth is that the enlightenment is like this break is this new thing is this revolutionary ideas but actually the truth is the the idea of white supremacy is only possible because of the barbaric, like, 200 years prior to the Enlightenment. So Enlightenment only is only 17th, really 18th century, and even 19th century. So it's, got, it's a bit later on, so the West starts killing everybody, like, 15th century, 16th century, really, right? But at the point where, at 1492, when Columbus sells the ocean blue... Europe's behind. Europe's behind everywhere. Europe's like the only part of the world in the Dark Age. You couldn't have the Enlightenment then 
because everybody left at you. <laughs> like there were more books in like one city in um, the Arab world than there were in all of Europe at that point. Wow. So this would never, this couldn't have happened, right? So you only get to the point of the Enlightenment when you had this mass genocide, when you have slavery, when the world's been created in this image of white supremacy. So when Kant's there going, oh, look, Africans are inferior, well, we're enslaved, so he must be inferior, right? Or the natives of America, they're a feeble race. Well, they've all died out, so yeah, of course. Or the Indians are being colonized now, so the, you actually can't separate the theory of the Enlightenment from the violence that produces the Enlightenment. And even if you think about, you know, they get this idea that all knowledge is from Europe, and this is one of the key problems with how we think everything's from Europe, Europe, Europe. but that's only possible because you know, there's, a, there's a proper whitewashing of, of knowledge when... Uh, the West, when European countries started to take over, you know, the Arab world is in predominance at that point. Like, mm. 1492 is the same year that the Moors get kicked out of Spain. And there is this mass book burning, like, literally, it's Cordoba. Uh, they burn two million books. They say, we've got to get rid of this Arabic knowledge. But they don't just get rid of the knowledge, they, they burn the books, but before they do that, they translate everything into Latin, change all the names of everybody. Mm. And then, so... I can actually forgive the Enlightenment thinkers. What, they, what have they got? They're looking at a world where white people are at the top, where all the books they're reading is saying it was Europe, 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 Europe. Mm. And then they theorize white supremacy. So you actually can't separate all that colonial violence and everything that happens before that uh, in understanding what produces the Enlightenment. And I think that's really important because too often the myth about the West is, is this like, the ideas are separate. Like this mm. idea is somehow separate from everything else. That's nonsense. Ideas are produced by the conditions which, which you are in. And that's a, that's a lesson for today as well, I think. Wow. So we're basically living under um, an inferiority complex. We are the, we are the recipients of an, an, an historic, a historic? An historic um, inferiority complex. Because yeah, if you... Exactly. Yeah. It's like you would... They, they felt inferior, so they, had one, they needed to make sure that they got rid of all the evidence that proclaimed so rather than learning and building together it was this it was this dominant i'm really interested in general just where that comes from just mentally like i'm just you know what i mean like where does that come from like if you've got if you know what if you've got a um if you've got if there's a if you know if there's one city for, as you said like in the Arab world that has more books than the whole of Europe, I just wouldn't, wouldn't you just think that there would be more of an understanding of, okay, so we need to develop our people. Let's learn together. And I think, and I am, I am very optimistic, hopeful and, you know, have this utopic kind of notion of what could, of what could have been or what could be, you know, but like, you know, when you look at it, you think to yourself, it's a really, it's a really, it's a really deep psychological issue that is, that, that, that was happening in those times, you know, <laughs> like 1492, it's like, was there a breakdown of some kind of, you know? Like, I don't, it is, it is, when you think about it, you're like, it's, it's, it's the way, and then you look at the levels of violence, which that Europe then goes to enact across the world. I mean, the genocide in America is 72 million people, they mm, estimate, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, and then you look at what they've done in Africa. It's like, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, and I think it's beyond my beyond my com- com- comprehension. Yeah. But I think the key point is that it may have been possible to develop the world in a different way, but that ain't the way it developed. And that isn't. Yeah. I mean, the hallmark of the West is white supremacy and 
brutal violence and the idea that white, that black and brown lives are just disposable and can be used as the fodder, if you like, mm. to develop the West. And that's the, the same. And if you look at today, the there's absolutely no different. A child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food and water. All of those children are black and brown. We don't barely raise it, like barely raise eyebrow, barely raise eyebrow, yeah. really. Yeah. And then just compare how different that is to COVID nineteen, right? Mm-hmm. So like, lots of people are gonna die in England, and it's shut down. Everything's locked down. There's all this. We're putting lots of effort in. We're gonna make sure we we stop it. More people die every single year from hunger. Nine million people than will die last year because of COVID. Yeah. Where's the where's the urgency? Don't exist, right? And, and that's that's the difference, right there. Yeah, yeah. That's really weird apathy. I mean, people have had time to. To organise, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, when you put it into context in the book about COVID and then malaria and looking at Ebola and, and the context and stuff and kind of where, where we're, and how fast we are moving, um, you know, if it was only, if it was a, a, a virus that was only affecting the global south, we wouldn't, there would be no sort of genuine kind of, um, you know, support or development there. It would have been like, oh, well, that's not for us. Sort of thing. Yeah, look nice. what's happening with India. India is yeah. a perfect example. Like we've got vaccinated guys, we're fine. India from there, yeah. you can't even you can't even let you produce the drugs. Like, that's all it asks is let let us produce the drugs. Nah, I can't do that. And yeah. if so, if COVID was just in the developing world, forget about it. We would never, never, we never <laughs> talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> we just we carried on like normal. Yeah, beggars belief. Beggars belief. Um, there was something that you said in the um, in the book and. Um, you might have to correct me on this, um, but you said something like, "The world is the world operates on racism and works via patriarchy." Is that something? Is that what? Is, is that is that right? I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So it operates on racism and works via patriarchy. And I was listening to um, there's a series on the podcast here. I was listening to um, on a show called Scene, Scene on Radio. So S C E N E on radio and um, there was a you've heard of it yeah. yeah yeah and there was a whole kind of like um they do they do they did several series and i think there's one series they did on men um and patriarchy yeah. and it was super interesting because and, and it feeds into what you've said um because it's like when you have a society that now like you know it's um you know patriarchy is the foundation that springs racism you know capitalism class all of these different things that are there and patriarchy is the foundation that is i feel that that is um causing all of the the issues and the discontent that we have because you know as i as i tend to say is that masculinity and the idea of masculinity is quite rigid and inflexible it's all to do with rules logic um staying in a structure um, and if you break those structures, you get the you get the undying elements of of shame, rejection, um, kind of pushed out, violence, all of this stuff. That happens when you break the rules um, because patriarchy is, is about rules. Um, so I wanted to just kind of to talk to you just a bit about because you you speak quite a, a bit in the book about patriarchy and racism and how that kind of merges together and. Um, you know, more and more of as I research and as I go through and kind of really um, develop an understanding around you know psychology and mental psychology, mental health, and masculinity. Um, I wonder if there was 
if you could kind of like give me a load the lowdown around race and patriarchy um and kind of what that looks like in context then and now yeah so the term which um me and i was like, talking to kimberly crenshaw because we've got a book coming out okay next year this year next year next year we're working on it for ages we did Ooh. like a, a couple of retreats with people in the uk called blackness at the intersection oh yeah and going back and forth about this and we she she coined this term racial patriarchy which i thought was perfect in a sense because oftentimes we we kind of separate patriarchy is different and racism are different things which i guess is i guess is true in some sense but actually the, the combination of them the intersection of them play out in really fascinating might not be the right way i mean i suppose it's interesting but they're deeply problematic mm-hmm. problematic ways um and so if you think about you know patriarchy and a very real patriarchy outdates racism, right? Racism as a system, relatively recently, you're talking 1492, we started to have the kind of murders of the West that gets established 17th century, 18th century, much more deeply. Um, but racism then into, so then you have this kind, you have patriarchy and then it intersects with racism and then produces, well, for us, well, for black people, it produces some really, some really negative consequences, right? Mm. So um, one of those is obviously the treatment of black women. And how sexual abuse, etc., under the um, plantation slavery, and think about how patriarchy that was used. So, sexual violence against black women was has been a feature, a, a particular feature of torture um, through plantation slavery, through colonialism, etc., even into like the twentieth century. Like it's not something that disappeared really, um, and that becomes a particular site of violence. And then, if you think about patriarchy, how that impacts impacts men. I mean. <sighs> I mean, you had to know. There's so many different ways you go, so many different different angles to take this. But one of the things that gets happened with, with black men is that we become, and really early on, are seen as like hyper masculine, right? Like the like all body, like no thought. Like this is the the key thing. We don't, we can't. Think, we're more like animals, so we're more like beasts. And if you think about the way we are treated, think of and in effect, the majority of people taken from Africa were men. And the reason for that was because we were seen to be like beasts, like 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 burden, like they picked us for for physical labor, right? And so, so much of the way that we, and if you want to, yeah, if you want to explain George Floyd, or even Kingsley Burrow, who died in custody in Birmingham a few years ago, or the way that we're just brutalized in public, that goes back to that same idea that we're not really that we're hyper men, we're hyper masculine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so the way that we're treated, and then unfortunately. We've started to internalize some of that hypermasculinity as well, and then how we treat women, that plays out in that, right? Because then we're not, we're now, we've now internalized the hypermasculine. Not all of us, but to a large extent, internalized some of the hypermasculinity. Go back to that conversation we had started before about rhyme, hip hop. What's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. Hypermasculinity would probably be like, like the starting point of what's wrong with it. But where those ideas come from really are deeply rooted in in racial patriarchy. How you see us as black people generally. Mm-hmm. You what you said about um, the very fact that you know the fact that in the UK um, when they 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 wanted you know Caribbean women to come over and um, and work on the labour forces because the idea was that they wanted to get white women back in the home um, to do that and that kind of and that blew my mind. Because I was like, you know, when you're just, I'm there holding the barbell, and I'm like, eh? 
<laughs> what do you mean? Um, like, so like, what do you mean? Uh, you know what I mean? And I'm just thinking to myself, this is actually very crazy because you then subjugate um, a whole class of people, a whole group of people, just to working and being conditioned to work. Whenever I hear, um, I'm, when I'm hearing stories about, you know, black people growing up, especially in the UK or the US, I was listening to a conversation, but in the US, and it's this thing of like, oh, um, yeah, I grew up with a single parent and my mum had to work three jobs to keep us on the, you know, to keep us alive and to keep herself alive. Um, she pretty much had to work every day of her life. Um, and I was just like, and I, and I hear that story all the time in the UK, in the US and Canada and mm. obviously the English speaking places, but there's places, there's, you know, the story is similar across France, the French speaking places mm. and and Spanish speaking. And it just makes me kind of, it makes me really think about this, the patriarchal nature was really just, it's there because it's there, it's there to protect uh, um, white women from the harshness <laughs> of their own practices. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And this is where I always come in. I'm just like, is there some kind of global psychology summit that people need to sit down and really understand the, the psychologies of the, of these people? Because when I say these people, I mean the people who just like really how we, how, you know, these people become in power in order for them to kind of enforce these ideas. And, you know, if we're speaking back to the Enlightenment, that's kind of where it begins and kind of, you know, and these are centuries, these old. And my one question is, where does it, where does it end? Because <laughs> and I'm asking, I know you're not a seer or, 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 or a medium or, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you to read the future, but with regards to, you know, how we said the fall of um, Moors in Spain and the Arab empires, not to say that Arab empires were any better because, you know, there were, there were, there were, there were, yeah, there were, problems and um and there were problems in asia like you know what i mean there, there were things that it, it wasn't perfect it's not to say that you know everything was perfect and then these people came along and just ruined the world <laughs> however the impact we see it so um but um but what i was going to say was that up until that point there was a thriving there were thriving dynasties and economies and mm. things of that nature and um is there? Do you think that there will be an end of this, and then there'll be a shift somewhere else? Because some, because the nature of things is that things have to move and change and transition to the next thing. And I think like I think we're in this period now of where we're, everybody's talking about it, everyone's becoming cognizant of what's going on. And I think I mean, people have had these conversations for generations. Yeah. Where does it? Where do you see it going? <laughs> well, I mean. I think everything ends. I mean, I think that's the key thing is everything ends. I just wanted to just, just add a bit to the to okay. the gender question. I think this oh, is an important, important thing to think about in terms of... Because you, when you're in the separation and, and patriarchy, the role for black men is very different to the role to white men. So mm-hmm. it's, it's always a mistake to say just treat men as men and women as women and all men and all women. And it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. because the role for black men is, is, is very different under racial patriarchy. Yeah. But also the role for black women as well. Right? So the idea of work like the idea of not being in the public sphere, like there's a feminist, there's this big pub, public sphere, private sphere, 
women are in the home, etc. That ain't never been the case with black women. Like, seriously, black women were brought here to work, like from day, like we was, mm. the women had to work. I don't know, I literally don't know any black women that don't work. Like, that's historically, and then that's if you get, and then that's why they brought us the nurses over, isn't it? Because you want to bring the nurses over, it's okay for black women to work. That's why you're not really women in the same sense. And we're going to try and push white women back into the home. Um, and so to understand the gender dynamics, you just can't understand them without race. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? So I think, and I think you see now, and I think you've got this emergence of black feminism is really important and women's movements as well. So, and I think if you look at look at the people who started the the movements, you can really see that intersectional that intersectional analysis is there. So if you think about Black Lives Matter started by uh, three black queer women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, over an issue which disproportionately affects black men. So black men are more likely to be killed by the police, more likely to be incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera. But the wrong way to look at that is that's an issue for black men because if black men are going in prison and black men are being shot by the police, who's that impacted? It's impacting black women, right? Like, this is actually a black issue which plays out in in gendered ways. And I think you've you've seen historically, it's actually been black women who've carried this. It was Ida B. Wells in the uh, lynching, anti-lynching movements. You had like Amy Jakes Garvey and... Garveyism, etc. You got uh, women now ripping black panthers, and I think when we when we see that and say that actually, well, therefore, what we really need to do is come together as a community and try to deal with the legacies of racial patriarchy because they are strong and they massively impact how we deal with each other, and not just black women and black men, but black men and black men. Like you are far more likely to be killed by a black man. Like you, that's the black that the, that's that's the person who's likely to kill you. Mm-hmm. It's not a police. It's another black man, and it's terrible. And you see that played out across the world. And we have to come to terms with that because that's again an impact of racial patriarchy, hypermasculine, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think once you see that, and that's what I'm trying to push in the book and as a prequel to Back to Black as well, is like everything kind of you have to see all these issues through race. Like white, white supremacy is the thing which just runs through everything and transforms all those other relations. And if you want to be free as men or women, et cetera, you have to end. <laughs> this system, this system is this, this. That has to be to bring. Hopefully, that can bring us together. I mean, I think I'm deeply optimistic. So the book does isn't doesn't seem optimistic because it just mostly oh, is no. terrible. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clarity informing book. Like if you don't, leave, if, you don't leave, if you don't leave that book being clear, you're very you're very straightforward in every sentence. <laughs> but that's what we need. We need clarity. That's the, we yeah, need man. clarity. Um, and I, I tried to end, so the, the publishers asked me to be more positive at the end. So the first version doesn't have the last, <laughs> the last few pages, but it didn't get more positive. But I tried. Uh, and I, I try. I use Malcolm because I always use Malcolm because Malcolm, Malcolm's yeah. best. Malcolm was best, basically. I'll just, just say that. And he, what he basically says is ballot or the bullet, right? Like, they will, when you create these conditions that people will live in, mm-hmm. people always are going to resist. And emp- all empires fall. Like they either fall under their own weight or there's revolution or there's something. This will end. And I think one of the things I also try to stress in the book is actually, if you look, timeline of history, it's only really like 18th, 17th, 18th century, the West becomes dominant, dominant, to now, it's not that long. Like, we've been around, like it's been humans for a long time. It's, it's actually quite a small, short period of time. And even 50 years ago, if Malcolm was around talking revolution, that was a proper thing. Like that might have happened. The West were terrified. Mm. Communism could have won. Pan Africanism could have won. So we've already seen it. We've already seen it. Tito already. So this will end at some point. And what is incumbent upon us to say is: Well, is it going to end in disaster? Is it going to end in the climate change killing everybody? How is it going to end? So we need to be thinking about how this ends and what comes after. Because what comes after could be worse. 
doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean to be, you know, sunshines and daisies. So, but I say I'm deeply optimistic. It's possible to end it. We just need to start thinking about reform. Start thinking about how we build the alternative. Well, 100. percent Of course, we can do. Just and one of the things I've pushed, but probably not as much in this book because I get it's more prequel to Back to Black. Is the key thing that we need, and that if it, that we have always needed, is black consciousness. Because if we have black consciousness on the African continent in the 15th century, slavery does not happen. Like, it literally does not happen. It's only because we were divided and we didn't actually see ourselves as people, right, that we could be played off against each other. And we could, and it was, had at that point we had black consciousness, slavery doesn't happen. Had later on, had we had black consciousness, colonialism doesn't happen. Yeah. We had black consciousness there. None of this would happen. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's kind of the key message. We need black consciousness. Just, that's the thing that we'll Just take for the people who haven't read Back to Black, um, define black consciousness. I mean, back consciousness simply is, I mean, it's really straightforward, right? That our connection to Africa is something that we should embrace, and it means we have a connection to each other and a responsibility to each other. So, as 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 black people, and black in this sense isn't like about biology. It's about you know we have. I can't tell the story of me without Africa. It's not possible. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? And that's an important connection that, that brings us all together. Um, and if we say that look, we need to unify around that and that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything it doesn't mean we have to have the same music or the same clothes even the same language it just means that we say look uh, this, what's that? Adam, Malcolm X put it in the Organization of Afro-American Union Constitution Organization of Afro-American Unity basically says it Africa will go no further than we will and we will go no further than Africa will and if we understand ourselves as a, as a collective and start to organise like that that's the solution to, to our problems as black people always has been Okay. If you want to figure out why, read and how, read Back to Black, and um, and then read, you know, New Age of Empire. Or if you know, if you're saying this is a prequel to it, then read New Age of Empire first, and then read Back to Black. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Kian Day. I mean, I really, really love chatting to you um, more time. But just wanted to round up by asking. Um, what are some uh, what are some resources outside of your books um, that you think people should be able, that you think people should be kind of um, going through now? Because I'm sure there's people who are you know listening to this and wanting to do better and to change their thoughts and their ideas. So probably hearing you know the kind of passion that we have about these these topics and whatnot. But what do you what do you think people should start like you know because it can be overwhelming um, when you when you just get given those information you don't know what to do with. Um, where, where can we begin? Uh, listen to some Malcolm X speeches. And I would say listen because there's something about... Like, Malcolm didn't write, but Malcolm spoke. And actually, just hearing it, it's just... And I listened to Malcolm I, mean, I literally just listened to 18 hours of Malcolm X speeches the other day because I found the audio book. <laughs> and this oh, is somebody... Okay. I learned all the speeches. Like, I know all the speeches. But I still loved it. And I was still laughing. I even know the jokes. I'm still laughing. Because there's something... <laughs> just something about the delivery. So yeah. I, and, it's, and it's also easy to get into. It's not difficult to get into. So I definitely say speeches, uh, Malcolm. So books which are really kind of foundational uh, would be Africa Must Unite by Kwame Nkrumah. I mean, that just breaks down neocolonialism. Kwame Nkrumah is the first president of Ghana. And just... I mean, honestly, this is written in the 60s, but you could easily say about Ghana uh, today. Uh, certainly the work of Claudia Jones. There's a book called Beyond Containment. Claudia Jones 
In, born in Trinidad, uh, family moved to America. She got deported because she was a communist, and they deported her to her home country, which actually was the United Kingdom because she was part of the British Empire. And she came to London and is famous in England for uh, organizing the first events that led to the Night Hill Carnival, the West Indian Gazette, first black British newspaper, anti immigration campaign. Claudia Jones just excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Star as well. Um, yeah, anything. I mean, those. I mean, I could go. I could give you a really, really long list. I'm trying to give you the the short highlight list. Um, and there's a book. Uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor's work is excellent, and there's, he has a really good book called Race for Profit about race segregation in Brit in America. And we need a version of that in Britain, which I, I might that might be one of my next projects. Um, and there was a book that came out last year by Stella Dadzi called A Kick in the Belly about black women in slavery in the Caribbean, which that was fascinating. I, le- I actually learned loads of stuff from that, including that after the British abolished the slave trade, remember the slave trade was abolished like 30 years before slavery was abolished. And they, the British basically do this because they, they, they have enough Africans on their plantations already and basically take, assume they can breed the Africans they need so they don't need to keep importing people. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the birth rate on the, in Jamaica particularly, but the Caribbean more generally, the birth rate of an enslaved after um, slavery, the, the trade's abolished, it plummets, like it properly plummets. They've got no choice, but it just plummets. And then after the slavery itself is abolished, it then goes back up. And her argument is that this was on purpose because the women knew, the, the women knew, they were like, we know what you're doing and we're not going to breed the next generation of slaves. And actually, one of the reasons why slavery becomes unprofitable by 1833, they don't have enough people. They don't have enough people. They literally ran out. They start running out of people uh, because women were like that. We don't have any more babies. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Those are really good resources to, to get into. We also have a, we started a, 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 a blog site, kind of like a website um, called Make It Plain, yeah. uh, where we do like, like just like shorter pieces more like topical stuff that you could just, just just short reads it's make dash it dash plain dot org yeah make dash it dash plain dash make dash it dash plain dot org okay okay wicked 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 thank you so much for listening to the episode this show is produced by pure creation media you can support the podcast by rating reviewing the podcast over at apple podcasts as the show gets more reviews and more ratings the more the show can grow Have a happy week. Until next time, I'll catch you then.